So if you are a regular attender, you uh, have made the observation that we've moved on from the uh, Living Intention series. And some of you who might have been here last week thought that I might have just been getting ready to ramp it up um, as I gave you a dire warning uh, last week. Um, but instead, I've chosen to just leave you in the tension of wondering when I'm going to bring those things back up. And you'll have to be guessing um, every week. <clears throat> so we are moving on. And um, one, of the, one of the strange things about Christians is that we often resist the God that we claim to trust, right? That, that, that there's things that, that we know God wants us to behave in a certain way or things that we should do or shouldn't do, and it's pretty clear to us, but we resist it. In fact, just a quick survey. Has anybody ever found yourself in a position to where you knew you should do something and you just didn't want to? Any, anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a fairly common thing, but, but it happens. You know, you know that you should forgive, but forgiving is difficult. You know you should get out of maybe a certain relationship, but, but there's something about that relationship. You, you know that, that you shouldn't go there, but you do. And you know you shouldn't spend your money that way. And you know, and you know, and you know, and you know. And, and your heart tells you what you should do. And uh, your conscience tells you what's right. Scriptures may tell you clearly what it is that you should do, but you find yourself resisting the God that you say that you trust. And the whole thing is really kind of confusing. It's especially confusing for non-Christians who are looking in and kind of watching this whole dynamic happen. And in fact, for non-Christians and non-church people, as they watch us do this and go through this, they have a word for it. It's called hypocrite, Right? where we don't always walk our talk. And, and we got to own that as Christians. And that, that's something that we deal with and that we, that we struggle with. But, it, but it's difficult sometimes to surrender your life and everything that it entails to God, especially to a God that you've never seen, especially a God who, who kind of speaks to you through your heart especially a God who communicates through ancient um, literature. But this is an ongoing struggle. If you're a Christian, you are going to struggle with this and you are going to face this. Now, the interesting thing is this, is that in leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, which in case you haven't figured it out, that's what we're leading up to, um, there, there are three, um, three characters whose story intersects with Jesus and intersects with his life. And each of these three guys that we're going to look at over the next, next few weeks, um, they had a very specific agenda. And it was an agenda that um, put them at odds with God, and more specifically, put them at odds with Jesus. And the reason that I want to talk about these guys is because there's a little bit of these guys in all of us. Every one of us deal with some of the things that these guys dealt with. And, and their stories of resistance, resistance to Jesus and resistance to what God was doing, actually illustrate the futility of resisting God. So, so the first character that I want to look at as we kick this series off is a guy named uh, Joseph Caiaphas, right? Joseph Caiaphas, and he was the high priest during the time of Jesus. And he was the most powerful most influential man in, in the whole uh, city of Jerusalem, in Judea, in what we know as ancient Israel. 
He was the connecting point between Israel and Rome. He was the communication front. He was the one that interacted and communicated with Pilate, who Pilate was the one that Rome had put in charge of the Jewish people and of Judea. And he was the one, he was the one who controlled the temple. And there was a lot that went along with that controlling the temple. Because you didn't just control the temple. That, that means you controlled the politics. That means you controlled the religion. That means you controlled the power. And he had about a 40-year run. I mean, he was, he was, and it wasn't just him. It, it, was, it wasn't just him. His, his stepfather had been the high priest. Brothers had been the high priest. I mean, this was like a family dynasty. They were entrenched. It was part of what they do. And they had all the power and all the influence and all the wealth that went along with that. And when I say wealth, I mean, they had extraordinary wealth. And the reason they had extraordinary wealth is because there were some amazing perks that came along with being the high priest in this culture. Because here's what what would happen. The Jewish people, all Jewish people, would pay what was called the temple tax. Even if they weren't living in that region and attending temple, they would send in their temple tax. And so the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars flowed into the temple. And this guy controlled it. In fact, so much money flowed into the temple and into the city of Jerusalem that leaders of surrounding nations tried to make it illegal for the Jewish people who were living in their nation to send their temple tax back to Jerusalem because so much wealth was flowing into that one area. And so things were going along just fine for Caiaphas. He was having a good old life. Things were great. That is until a carpenter turned rabbi stepped into the pages of history. Jesus, son of Joseph. Now, some of you may be like, wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus' last name was Christ. No, that's just what you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer, right? <laughs> oh, no, none of you do that. <laughs> that's right. At least you don't think you do until you hear your nine-year-old son say it. What? No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but, but that wasn't his last name. Christ was a title. And it was a title basically meaning that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that they had been waiting on for a long time. But for some reason, whenever you hurt yourself yelling out, Jesus the Messiah, it just doesn't kind of have the same ring to it, right? (laughs) Yeah, but when Jesus showed up, the main problem that he presented, especially for the religious leaders, the main problem that he presented was the crowds. Because an amazing amount of people would come out and see him. And, and we see some stories where there's, where there's numbers, specific numbers given, and it gets up into the thousands. But there was crowds that would follow him, sometimes hundreds, many times thousands, and it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And the pro- this was a problem for the Jewish leaders because big crowds meant that there was the possibility or the potential for insurrection that there was the possibility or the potential for division, for civil war, that when there were large crowds, things may not go well. Specifically, if those crowds decide to get rowdy and turned on the Jewish leaders or turned on the Romans that were in the city or wherever Jesus was and they had gathered. 
And part of the thing that bothered them was not just the potential for, for all of these things, but it was the idea that Caiaphas and his guys, they never could draw those kind of crowds. In fact, the only time that they had those kinds of crowds were on festival days, religious festivals. And the crowds would then come and be, be around them at that time. But they knew even then, those crowds weren't there to see them. Those crowds were there to celebrate the festival. So the other problem with Jesus when it came to Caiaphas is this, is that it was the amount of authority that Jesus spoke with. Because he didn't just say things. He said things with authority. And people who, who watched him and people who listened to him, they were amazed by it. They were amazed. Uh, and in fact, he, he operated with so much authority when Jesus went into the temple and he got upset at all of the money changers and all of the, the dishonesty and everything that was going on within that. And he got mad and he started flipping tables and clearing the place out. The group of guys who were sent, who were the religious leaders that were sent by the higher ups to kind of deal with Jesus, when they showed up and he was doing all that, they did not get there and ask, what are you doing? And they didn't even ask, why are you doing this? They asked the question that had to be asked. They showed up and they asked him, who do you think you are? Because he was operating with such authority. And in this authority, he was extremely critical of all of the religious leaders, Caiaphas included. And, and if you want to see what a Jesus rant looks like, if you want to see what it looks like when he gets upset and he goes off on the religious leaders, when you get home this afternoon, open up your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus goes off and it's great. It is entertaining reading. But here's, here's how he ends that passage after he just goes off on the religious leader. He says this, you snakes, you brood of vipers. And in the context of the culture, him saying that to him, you wouldn't let your children speak this way. And here's Jesus, the Messiah, speaking this way. How will you escape being condemned to hell? In other words, you people who get up every day and it's your job to be good. You people who get up every day and it's your job to lead people. That it's your job to oversee the sacrifices in the temple. You are the connection of the people to God. You are going to hell. So no wonder Caiaphas had an issue with Jesus. You would too if he was standing there yelling that at you. And Jesus didn't just threaten the peace. He threatened the peacekeepers. And this is what he was doing. Now, this, this whole dynamic, it builds and it builds and it builds until finally there, there, there's a final straw that just breaks the camel's back. They can't take it anymore. And the final straw was not something that Jesus said. The, the final straw wasn't a conversation or an argument that he had with the religious leaders. It wasn't a confrontation that he made them look bad in front of everybody. The final straw in all of this, in all of this tension, and all of this buildup, the final straw was an act of compassion. 
It was when Jesus raised someone from the dead. And it wasn't just anyone. He raised Lazarus, who was a very famous citizen of the city of Bethany. And so what was the pinnacle of Jesus' miracles? What was the height of the things that he had done on earth to show his power, to show his authority? That was the final straw. And here's why that was the final straw. Because if you go through and you read that story, the aftermath of that is not only did the large gathered crowd that was there see that happen, but then they immediately went and they started telling everybody what they had seen. And then they went and told everybody what they had just heard. And so what was already a large crowd was growing and growing and growing and growing. And Caiaphas and the rest of the religious leaders realized that their strategy, which up to this point had been trying to discredit Jesus in front of the people, trying to separate him from the crowd by making him look bad, by trying to make him look like he didn't really know what he was talking about, that it was failing, that they could not divide Jesus from the crowd. And so John writes about kind of the, 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 this moment of realization that these guys had, that these religious leaders had. He, here's what it says. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. That is their tactic of trying to discredit Jesus publicly. Look, and I love this, look how the whole world has gone after him. So there were such large crowds. There was so much uh, uh, murmuring. There was so much chatter going on. It seemed so many people were mesmerized and kind of buying into Jesus and what he was doing that their view of it was, wow, this is not working. The whole world is going after them. And of course, that statement is incredible to me because they had no idea what they were on the front end of as far as the world going after Jesus. They had no idea that 2,000 years later, when there's a six, I don't know how many, are we up to seven billion people on the planet now? That a third of those people would consider Jesus someone of extreme significance and related to God. They had no idea, but the little world they know, the little world they could see, it seemed like everybody was going in that direction. They decided we have to do something different. So here's what they did. It says, and the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, that doesn't really mean much to us as we read that. Because the Sanhedrin, uh, most of us don't really know what that was. Here's what that was. That was three completely separate groups of people. And those three groups of people did not get along. They did not get along theologically, and they did not get along politically. So if you wanted to kind of try and imagine what that would look like in our, in our, in our culture and in our system, calling together the Sanhedrin would be like calling together the Republicans and the Democrats and the Libertarians and the Green Party and the whatever else is out there. And we're all going to come together. And there is something going on that all of those people are in agreement. 
Can you imagine that group of people being in agreement? I, I, I struggle to find. The, the closest I can come up with was right after 9-11 when there was the vote to go in and move into Iraq. And it was a fairly unanimous vote. I think there was one dissent in the Senate. That's the closest I can kind of come up with. But something so extreme had happened that those groups kind of came together. And that's what they were facing. Jesus had become such a movement that those groups who did not agree with each other, who did not like each other, they came together and they said, we have got to do something. Here's what they said in that meeting. And by the way, we know what they said in that meeting because later on, after the resurrection, when, when, when the movement of Jesus began to spread, many of, the, many of the religious leaders joined the movement. And so they had conversations with the guys. And they were like, <laughs> you would not believe the meetings we had leading up to this whole thing. Here's what we were saying inside these meetings. That's how we get insight onto some of this stuff. Here, here, here's what they said in their meetings. What are we accomplishing? What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. To which we read that and we're like, well, yeah, that's the point, right? Like it's the whole reason he's doing it. But then we get a glimpse of the real issue. Then we see what's really going on because they knew in their heart of hearts that Jesus was right. Here's, they say, they said, everyone will believe in him. And they knew this, but there was something. And this is where we find ourselves in the story. There was something so important to them. Something so central in their life that they could not accept Jesus. To accept Jesus would be to let go of something that they cherished. It would be to let go of their power, their popularity, their wealth, they knew that to do what they really needed to do would cost them too much. So they said, if we let him keep going, everybody's going to believe. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. There it is. If we let this go, we will lose what is valuable to us. Here's what that sounds like to us. When you decide to follow Jesus, it'll cost you something. When you decide to put Jesus front and center in your life, it's going to cost you something. And there's the tension. You thought we were done talking about tension. There's always tension. And that's it. This is why we find ourselves as Christians resisting the God that we say that we trust. So everybody's following Jesus. And what had become the center of the, the religious leaders' lives was all of the sudden vulnerable. It was at stake. So then our guy Caiaphas, he speaks up. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. 
That's quite the opening line to the gathered Sanhedrin. You guys are idiots, right? I mean, that's a little insulting, I would guess. But he continues, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die. He's saying, guys, 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 forget all the trick questions. Forget trying to discredit him. Forget trying to separate him from the crowd. He said, it is better for you that one man die. And then I think he kind of realized what he said and the way that he had phrased it. Because he kind of adds in a little qualifier and like kind of covers himself. He says, you don't realize it is better for you that one man die. I mean, for the people, right? Not for us, you know, as a leader. I mean, for the people. This is all about the people. It is better for the people than that the whole nation perish. In other words, he says, guys, 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 this isn't difficult. If we get rid of one guy, problem solved. If we get rid of one guy, we will, I mean, the nation will be saved. If we get rid of one guy, we, I mean, the nation is better off. Then, then John writes this. He says he, talking about Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And I could just kind of picture John, because he's, he's an old man at this point, kind of writing down his, his recollection of the events. And I can kind of just see him like writing this and just this, this, this smile, this grin coming across his face as he thought about how these guys had no idea what they were setting up. No idea what they were putting into motion. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together to make them one. See, as John was writing this, he was kind of on the backside of all these major events. And so he wrote this, he wrote this knowing that all of their scheming all of their plotting, all of their conniving was actually advancing the will of God. That what they were setting up in the end would not put an end to the influence of Jesus, but would magnify it exponentially. And it illustrates both, both in history and in our lives, the futility of trying to resist God, even though every single one of us do this. And make no mistake about it. Not only is this an illustration, but your life will be an illustration of this. It will either be an illustration of a person who looked and said, yes, yes, even though I know it's going to cost me something or of a person who said, nope, 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 nope. That's going to cost too much. I'm going to have to give up something too close, too valuable to me. But either way, you will end up an illustration because you were not made for your glory, but for the glory of God. And in the end, your life will be a reflection of the truth and the glory of God one way or the other. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
as if they had the ability to do it. They were way overestimating their power. They were. Listen, listen to what Jesus said about this concept a chapter earlier about them taking his life. He, here's what he says in chapter 10. He says, the reason that my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority. There's kind of our word undergirding today. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. See, John, <laughs> I mean, as he's writing about these guys plotting to take Jesus, he's just got to be laughing to himself. Like, I can't believe they thought they would be able to do this. Parents, have you ever had a situation where you, you, you saw your kids plotting their life, right? And usually it's when they're mad at you. Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and this is how it's going to go. And you're just looking at them, and you're like, mm-hmm, sure you are, sure you are. I bet that's going to, you, good luck, yeah. And you're not surprised a bit when none of their plotting works out, right? Right? Some, some of you, some of you, you remember when you were younger declaring how what was going to happen. These are my plans and this is going to how it's work and you're not going to be able to stop it. And ah, yeah, parents just look at you, you silly, silly child. Because we know, right? As parents, like you, you know more. You see the bigger picture. You've experienced things. And I can only imagine that God in the same way looks down on us and is just kind of shaking his head as we know what it is that we should do. We know the direction that we should go and we resist. We say, nope, nope, nope. It's my thing. I've got a plan. I know how it's going to work out. I can see it all. No God, no God, no God. And he just shakes his head. He just, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I, and I imagine, don't you think it breaks his heart sometimes when he watches as we come across crucial moments in life and we choose to hold on to that thing that's more important to us than him and we put him to the side for something else and somehow we think we're going to have our way and it's all going to work out. And yet here we see Caiaphas and his posse plotting to take the life of Christ. Now, Caiaphas had a big problem when it came to, them, to this whole thing. Because he couldn't just kill Jesus. See, Rome would not execute anybody who broke just Jewish law. Who broke a, a, a law out of what we know as the Old Testament. If somebody did that, Rome would pretty much ignore it. And so, so what, what, what he had to do, what Caiaphas had to do was he had to get a charge against Jesus that would, be, that, would be, that would be egregious enough for Rome to say, we've got to do something about this, that, that, that we've got to step in, that, that Rome could not ignore. 
And in fact, what he needed was he needed a charge of sedition against Jesus. And so he kind of figured out a way to do this. And he figured out a way to claim that Jesus had claimed, and Jesus wouldn't even answer to defend himself when he was asked this directly, that Jesus had claimed to be a king. And that was all he needed. Because someone claiming to be a king didn't just violate the Old Testament law. It didn't just kind of be a threat to peace in the region. It was a threat to the Roman Empire itself. And since Jesus claimed to be a king, that was all Caiaphas needed. And so he pegged Jesus with the charge of sedition. And by doing that, the threat would be eliminated. And that thing that they held dear would be secure. So he goes through his little plan, gets the charge brought. Just imagine the feeling that Caiaphas would have. As days later, someone would come running to his house, knocking on the door, sir, sir, sir. The body of the Jewish rabbi that we crucified is missing. What do you mean missing? I mean, it's not there. And a few weeks later, there would be crowds and crowds of people who were gathering. And now they were not rallying around the person of Jesus. They were rallying around the name of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and Caiaphas realized that Jesus did more in his dying than he did in his life. And he realized he was not able to take Jesus's life. But a few years later, Regardless of all of his efforts, Caiaphas lost that which he held dear. And years later, the Jewish people lost their temple. And as would happen time after time after time, those who tried to stand against the will of God ended up just being a footnote in the story of Jesus. And here's Caiaphas who held a significant, position who is now reduced to a footnote in the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as you're looking, you, you might be like, okay, okay, okay. So what does all this have to do with me? And the answer is everything. This has everything to do with you because there is a bit of Caiaphas in all of us. There's that thing in all of us that has something and we say, preserve at all costs, protect at all costs, hold on to at all costs. And for all of us, it, it's different things. For some of us, it's preserve a reputation, preserve a relationship you know that you shouldn't be in, preserve a position, preserve some level of income, preserve some standard of living, preserve, preserve some level of influence, preserve whatever control you feel that you have, preserve, preserve, preserve. There is something in all of us that wants to preserve. But listen, he, here, here's what you can't escape. 
that whatever you have replaced God with at the center, whatever that thing that's at the center of your life is already diminishing in value and in influence. Think about it. Think about it. Your greatest regrets, if you think back over your life, the things that you regret the most are connected to an attempt to preserve something that probably isn't even a part of your life anymore. And that thing was losing significance even as you were clinging to it. And here's why. Because the little gods that are the things that we put in the center and in the front of our lives that replace God, those things always disappoint always. And the pressure to preserve those things will eventually lead to self-destruction and it will lead to damage of those who are closest to you. And that's why our greatest regrets are in connection to trying to preserve something that we set ourselves up for by having that set ourselves up for self-destruction and hurting others. And think about it, Caiaphas, Caiaphas had access to the, the uh, oldest existing copy of the Jewish law. That law that right in it says, do not murder. And Caiaphas, as the high priest, he was the guardian, the steward of the law of God. But yet there he was, and he had an innocent man murdered. Why? Why? The answer is because our capability for evil and our capability for sin is incredible when we are trying to preserve something in the place of God. And we will go to lengths and we will do things that we never thought we would do as we hold on to those things tightly. See, as I look at the whole thing, I understand. I understand why Christians resist the God that we say we trust. I get it. The reason that we do that is because surrender is terrifying. The concept of what you may have to give up or what you may lose, it's terrifying. But it's only terrifying because we think we know best what we need. So here's your challenge this week. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make every effort to find some time to be silent before God. And I want you to just ask one question and then listen. I want you to ask this question. Have I replaced you at the center of my life? Some of you don't even need to ask. Some of you know exactly what you've replaced God with. But the reason that we don't ask this question on a regular basis is because we already really know the answer. We know the things that we've elevated in our life. We know the things that we've placed value on that causes us to resist the things that God wants us to do. 
But what you have placed such a high value on is already diminishing in its value and its significance. You cannot preserve it. But it's setting you up. It's setting you up to destroy you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, this comes down to what may be the singular, most significant issue in our attempt to follow you. That is, will we put you front and center above all in our life? Or will we hold in the center what we think is valuable and just acknowledge you to the side? This is the struggle of all Christians. Father, this week I pray as we spend time with you, Lord, do not let us escape this question. Lord, I want you to make the answer to what we have elevated in place of you so clear that we cannot get it out of our heads. God, I then pray that you give us the wisdom and the courage to begin to do what is necessary to move you back to the center. Because without you in the center, Lord, self-destruction awaits. Lord, I thank you that you are patient with us in this area. But God, I pray that you move us to a point of action when it comes to this issue. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being out. Join us next week as we continue with the setup. Yeah.